Good morning, everybody. This is the Bible interpretation class. Today, our topic is how to read each passage of the Bible. So, yep, we're just going to learn how to interpret any passage of the Bible today. That's a humbling task, and we've got about 55 minutes. So we're going to start by asking the Lord for help. Uh, Lord God, we depend upon you today. Would you just please teach us today about your word, about how you mean us to understand it? Would you guide us, and would you prepare us just to regularly be reading your word, understanding it rightly, and worshiping you for it? We depend upon you for this. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Cool. So I'm going to start this class with a question. Uh, Let's say you and I are good friends. Perhaps we already are, but if I don't know you, my name's Zach. Let's say uh, we're good friends, and I told you one day that, well, you know, when it comes to interpreting the Bible, you know, everybody's just got their own interpretation. When you read a specific passage, everybody's going to have their specific view of it, and it's okay if those views contradict each other. How would you gently respond to me, your good friend, if I told you that? You're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> cool. And, and what else would you say, Danny, gently? <laughs> yeah. Um, I would have to hear the question again. Yeah, it's the, the idea is everybody can interpret the Bible however they want to. How do you respond to that? Doing your best to be helpful and kind. God, God didn't, didn't mean it in multiple ways. Okay, he expand up. So how, what is that? Mm -hmm. What did he mean? Okay, so should we be asking the question, what do I want the Bible to mean? Or what does God intend it to mean? That's what we're getting at, right? Yeah, and, and we could keep, I could keep this conversation going. I could keep asking other kind of eluding questions, right, and evade the problem. Uh, but that's essentially the crux of the issue right there, is our, when we read the Bible, God actually wants us to ask, what did God mean in the first place? God does intend the Bible to tell us something specific, and uh, we need to be seeking what God himself means to convey when we interpret the Bible. Uh, Follow-up question, what is our guide for determining what's the right interpretation then? How do we end up finding out what God meant when we read a passage of the Bible? I think you've got to kind of know what, you've got to know the character of God. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and, and the way that um, he uh, moves our I don't know. I guess you have to, you know, look at the Bible as a whole. I mean, uh, you know, God is the same as yesterday, today, and forever. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I don't know where I'm going with this. Yeah. But it's, um, it's the character of God. You got to, I guess we got to kind of know him a little bit. Okay, so you got to know God's character. And where, where do we get information about God's character in the first place, though? Let's go Micah in the back. The rest of the Bible. That's right. So uh, rather, um, rather than leading you on the rabbit trail more and more, we're just going to settle with that. The Bible is the way we interpret the Bible. God has graciously given us the entire Bible as the way uh, we interpret the rest of the Bible. You've probably heard the phrase before, Scripture interprets Scripture. 
So we're going to dive into that phrase this morning, and we're asking the question, how does the Bible help us interpret the Bible? So those are the two things we've said so far. One, be looking for God's meaning, meaning in the Bible, not just our own. Uh, We want the Bible itself to be our guide for interpretation, and uh, the Holy Spirit is always our help in interpreting the Bible. He leads us into the things of Christ, so just like we did at the beginning, we should have humility and pray for help whenever we're interpreting God's Word. Uh, But the standard we're always coming back to is, what does the rest of the Bible say? And we're just going to look at a specific framework in which you can ask that question and begin to find the answers. This is going to be called the Three Horizons. You'll notice that we've got three big uh, Roman numerals on your handout there, three different horizons. Think of these as three different levels of optical zoom or three different zooms on a map. If you opened up Google Maps or whichever one you like and started at the ground level, the street level, that's the the focused in, that's the textual horizon, and then zoomed out a little bit more to perhaps a state or a country, that's the epical horizon, looking at a specific area of history, and then zoom out some more to the entire world, and that's similar to thinking about how does the entire Bible help us interpret the text. So those are the three zooms or horizons we're going to be thinking about as we ask the question, How does the Bible help us interpret the rest of the Bible? We're going to use Isaiah 55 as a practice text throughout this class. So you can go ahead and open there if you have your Bible. I've got mine somewhere around here. (laughs) This one. Yeah. So go ahead and open up to Isaiah 55. And we're just going to go ahead and read that. And then we'll dive in to the first of three horizons to begin talking about what questions should we be asking when we look at the Bible to understand the Bible. All right. Here in Isaiah 55, I'm just going to go ahead and read the entire chapter. It starts, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear, and come to me, hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that you did not know shall run to you, because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, 
but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy, and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. All right, so that's our text. If you just came in, we're in Isaiah 55, and we're going to look at that first uh, Roman numeral on your handout. That's where we are now. We're talking about the textual horizon. That's how the text itself illuminates the text's own message. So we're looking at this passage in Isaiah 55, and we're looking at the whole book of the Bible, Isaiah, to understand what this passage means. That's where we've got to start. Uh, So I've left four blanks on your handout there. The first one is profile. The first thing we need to do is understand what's the profile of this book, its author, the occasion of writing. What, What is the original context here? What does this book of the Bible tell us about itself? It will inform our basic understanding of the text, and it will prevent us from going off the rails. Because every passage of the Bible was written to a specific audience in a specific situation. And if we ignore those details, as many of us are already comfortable with, then we're going to totally misunderstand the text, right? So when you're looking at a passage or looking at a book of the Bible, several things you want to be on the lookout for when you're trying to profile the passage are uh, the author, the audience, the occasion, and the genre. I'm only going to go over these things at a super like surface level, just going to give you the the top level. This class is more about giving you the framework and helping you know what questions to ask. And and then there's so much more to learn about each little thing afterward. We're actually going to have five or six classes after this about interpreting every genre of scripture. And so the people who do those classes are going to help you with the specifics here. Uh, but the things you want to be looking for, like I said, you want to be looking for the author of the passage, the audience, who was it written to, the occasion, what was happening, or why was this written, at what point was this written, and the genre. There are certain other things we could call out here, like major themes and stuff, but we're just going to focus on those four for today. If we take a look at Isaiah 55, Um, For the sake of time, I'm just going to throw these details out, and then we're going to do some more class interaction on the next point. Uh, But the author of Isaiah 55 is who? Guess who? Isaiah. Isaiah. Yeah. Uh, And the audience, does anybody know who the audience is of Isaiah 55? Uh, Israel. Israel. Okay. Any more specific than Israel? What's that? Yeah, specifically the southern kingdom of Judah. This is after uh, Israel has split into two kingdoms, Israel and Judah. So Israel is still right, it's still within overall Israel. So the southern kingdom of Judah, and the occasion of this particular part of Isaiah is that Israel has been unfaithful to God and has been looking to put their hope in other, other things besides the Lord. And God has commissioned Isaiah to prophesy to them and give them God's message. 
This is prior to when Judah went into exile. Uh, but uh, this particular part of Isaiah is giving them a prophecy about exile and about after exile. So that's the occasion here is uh, Judah's unfaithful. They need a message from God and exile is coming. And the question remains, what's after that? Fourthly, the genre is, I think we've said this word several times already, the genre of Isaiah is prophecy. And if you zoom in on, on Isaiah 55, you'll notice that we could probably call this poetry as well. You see that it's broken up into stanzas. There's a lot of literary devices being used. It's a little more flowery than regular prose. And so when we interpret this, we should be thinking, well, what do all of these literary devices, all these literary forms have to, to say to help inform what the main point is, right? Rather than just kind of ignoring them and sterilizing the text, right? And so that doesn't mean we just treat everything as figurative and nothing's literal at all, but we need to pay attention to the figurative language as figurative language when it is, right? So that's the profile of Isaiah. I'm gonna dive into the next point. The next one, the next blank is proposition. And you guessed it, these are all gonna be P's. I'm doing the alliteration thing. Sorry about that. Uh, this one is proposition, and it's asking the question, what is the main point that this text is communicating? What, what communication is it setting forward? That's what a proposition is. So this at least means being able to read the text in English, uh, and even though that's not the original language, when you've got a reliable translation, that's, that's enough to understand the gist. Uh, at least read it in English and understand the meaning of all the words and phrases. So go ahead and take a look at Isaiah 55. Let's take our first stab, just regular reading comprehension, based on the context we know. What would you say is the main point of Isaiah 55 in like a sentence or two? Take a minute, analyze. Go for it, Lyle. It's, it seems like it's saying uh, the main point here, come to the Lord for blessing, and then, other, and then you will be an example of God's blessing mm -hmm. to others around you. Okay, nice. I think that's pretty good. Would anybody add to that or say something different? Not saying there are multiple interpretations, but we're working together to the right one. Go for it, Nick. Maybe just like an added clause of come to the Lord for blessing because he will, he will bless you. Like that's mm -hmm. part of it. And, and he will actually use you as an, as an example. It seems to be that there's a two, like there are all these imperatives, come, listen, seek, mm -hmm. return. And then there's also like for God is this, for God is this. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. One thing I want to point out about what Nick said so he did something really important there with transition words. You used the word for, right? So you, you summarized it as come to the Lord for blessing, for, and then he's giving you all these promises, right? And so when you see a word like for, that's actually super helpful because it helps you take certain parts of the passage and put it 
after a because or underneath the other parts of the passage. They, the for becomes the, the reason or the assurance why of the thing before it. Sometimes for means something slightly different than that, but that's what it means here, right? For, you should do this, for blank, right? And so I think we, we've got like a basic gist of it. I'm just gonna write down a few key words from what we said. It'll take me a long time to write the whole sentence and I'm trying to be efficient. So I'm just gonna say, Lyle gave us come, and then we've got, I'm gonna add a four, and Lyle also gave us uh, blessing, example, and reassurance from God. So that was what Nick pointed out. So example to the nations. Great, great. And what are what are we saying? They they are coming to again. The Lord. The Lord. All right. So come to the Lord. Great. So that's like shorthand for basically what we said. We're going to take this uh, this main point, and as we go through all the rest of the steps, we're going to try and tweak it, emphasize things, flesh things out and arrive at, based on all the context we have, how would God have us as not the original audience, but a secondary audience, still a true audience of God's word, but not the original ones. How are we to understand what this is saying to us, right? One question I wanna start with right now, based on what we learned in the profile part, the part about context, what's one word or something you would point out here that relates to specifically the situation that God's people were in at the time. So let's make it just a little specific to Israel. Is there anything that you think this relates to what was going on with them? And I will make, you, make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Oh. It has to do with his covenant. Okay, so we've got a specific promise to David, right? Okay, did you wanna say anything else about that? Oh, all right, great. We've got a specific promise to David. So one of the, this blessing is related to a specific promise that God gave to Israel. That will be important, we'll come back to that. Anything else? Go for it, Becky. Well, they're also facing exile because they have done the opposite of God. Mm -hmm. And so they've seen Israel go into exile and they're facing uh, people, you know, I, the Babylonians, or they're facing somebody who's threatening mm -hmm. them as well. And so right. Mm -hmm. Right. So the background is in real time, threat of exile. And then this particular passage is pointing forward to a time where this message will come to the people again during exile. So this, we should either be thinking about this as the background is threat or during exile, right? So the come to me takes on a new meaning that way, right? It's not just come to me in general because you were busy playing video games. It's come to me because you were unfaithful to God and you're in exile now. Come back, there is blessing for you, right? All right, we're gonna move on because we've got a lot of, a lot of other points to go through, but that was excellent. The next point is purpose. And this question is, what is the text intending to accomplish? 
Now, this one probably seems like it's very similar to the last one, which is just what's the text's main point. But this is taking it to another dimension. Essentially, what is the text trying to accomplish upon or in its audience? What does it want to do to you if you're listening to the text? Or what does it want to do to the original audience? Some of the examples of things a text could be trying to do is to describe a situation so that the audience can understand or command the audience to do something, move them to take action. It could be setting forth an argument to persuade the audience of something. It could be expressing an emotion so that the audience might resonate with it or understand, or set up for a later part of the narrative so that the audience, when they get to the narrative, will feel the right effect. Then there are all sorts of things that a text could be trying to do. And the reason we point out this specific step, the purpose of the text, is so that we don't just get left with propositions and statements and then the audience is never changed, right? This is not just intellectualism. This is the word of God, which God uses to change and save his people. So uh, I'm just gonna give you a couple of examples here so we can move on to the next point. We could have said, based on what we said so far, the purpose of Isaiah 55 is to persuade God's people to come to him. He's giving them all these reassurances and promises to convince them that they can come to the Lord, that there is blessing, right? Could also be to reassure God's people that God's mercy is truly offered to them. There's, this reassurance is not just a statement. This reassurance is meant to have an effect on the audience. And so when we interact with the main point of this message, we ought to be looking at the things that it's saying and asking, what is that doing to the original audience? And translating a little farther, what should it do to me? Right? We're not totally at the what does it do to me yet, because there's a few more layers of interpretation we need before we can just flat out apply like a message to Israel to us without any other work. But this, this will form the foundation of asking the question, what is the text supposed to do to us? Okay, I'm going to give you the fourth point, and then we'll take some questions. The fourth point is presence. And this is asking the question, how does the text accomplish its purpose? The word presence has to do with like, what form does the text take? What literary devices does it use? If you were to sit in a room with the text, what kind of presence does it have? Is it angry? Is it slinging insults at you? Is it bringing up arguments? Is it you know, using lots of symbolism? That, like that sort of question. Uh, the idea is literary strategies that a text uses are actually excellent indicators of emphasis. So when a text wants to emphasize some part of the main point, like if blessing is to be emphasized or God's promise to his people and reassurance, the text is probably going to be using some sort of literary device, whether it's you know, figurative or more straightforward, to put emphasis on that. And so when we understand the text, then we should be putting the same emphasis on that. Use the text's emphasis. 
Some examples of literary devices to look out for. This will not be exhaustive because there's a whole bunch of them. We should have a whole class on this. Uh, symbolism, metaphor, illusion. You guys are probably familiar with a lot of these. Metaphor and, and simile when you're figuratively comparing one thing to another to evoke a quality of the thing. Personification, when you give some non-human items, some human characteristics or symbolisms when you use an ordinary object to represent an idea. Um, can anybody point out any uh, figurative language or literary devices that Isaiah 55 uses? Just practice identifying one and figuring out what it's emphasizing. That's excellent. And what do you think that one's emphasizing? What's the point of, you know, personifying the the fields, the trees, the hills? Creation praises the Lord. Okay. Creation praises the Lord. So we've got some sort of emphasis on creation and it praising the Lord. Uh, go ahead, Micah. Okay, great. And what do you think that's trying to emphasize? Um, just um, how much God's mind is infinitely more complex than ours. Okay, so we've got God's mind is infinitely more complex than ours because his ways are over our ways. Okay, great. Anyone else? Go ahead, Atad. The Atad. first verse is, the image there is like a marketplace. Mm -hmm. And um, it's like an opener preacher in a marketplace, and he's saying, come and buy, right? Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. Okay, great. So we've got the image of a marketplace and perhaps symbolism with food, where the food is something that the people really truly should enjoy, that truly will bless them as opposed to the other things they're buying. Great. So those are some examples. One example, let's go with that one for a moment, the one with food, because it happens to be the one I wrote down. So I'm going to say more about it. Um, the There's... Uh, Food and drink are standing in for symbols of, you know, enjoying God's word or of fellowship with God himself. You can tell in verse 2 where uh, it connects listening to God with eating food. So why do you spend your money for that which is not bread is parallel to listen diligent to me and eat what is good, right? So there's something about God's presence hearing his word that's akin to good food, like something that's actually satisfying. Verse 3 connects all of that to inclining the ear and coming to God and hearing. And I believe the emphasis here is that true life is found in God and in his word and not in all the other places that Judah is tempted to put their trust. And so one thing, one example of what this, there's a marker, uh, what this figurative language, what this literary device does to our main point is it helps us say, okay, well, we've got the, the command to come to the Lord, right? If we were to flesh that out, we've got all this new meaning in that phrase because coming to the Lord is so much more satisfying, is so much better. It's true life as opposed to all the other things that God's people were tempted to put their trust in. Right? So there's all of a sudden there's new emphasis on this phrase. And so when we read even the main point that we wrote, trying to summarize the passage, we should be 
understanding that command and understanding the promised blessing with all of that emphasis and all of that context, right? Great. Cool. I'm going to propel us to the next point. The next one is the epical horizon. That's Roman numeral two. And this is asking the question, how does the text's era of biblical history illuminate the text's message? This, uh, you see, God has revealed his redemptive plan and revealed himself progressively across history. And each part of the Bible was recorded at some point in that progression of revelation. So therefore, each text in the Bible will share concerns and themes with the other text in the same era. For example, if Isaiah was written around the same time as several other prophets like Micah, uh, then you might be asking, uh, well, if they share themes, if they're saying a lot of the same things, then when I interpret them, I might, might want to interpret them side by side, see what they share, give proper emphasis to the things that are repeated throughout that time period. And uh, yeah, and that will help us under, understand the text's main point even better. The first subpoint under Roman numeral two is contemporary books. And that's not contemporary like contemporary worship music. That's contemporary like at the same time as Isaiah, what else was written around that time in the Bible? We're specifically looking at the Bible. And that's asking the question, what themes does this text share with the other books of the Bible from the same period? That's what we were just talking about. If all the prophets around Isaiah's time were speaking of future deliverance from exile or speaking of judgment in exile, then we might want to consider what they say alongside what Isaiah says. Uh, yeah, we're going to skip ahead to the next point for time, but that's just to point out that we could take several books of the Bible and, and read them in parallel from the same period, and it might even be a good Bible study for us to decide, well, I'm going to read all of the prophets from before the exile together, read those in a row, and see what they all share. That'll actually help me understand what they're all trying to say, uh, and, and that could be one way we implement that. For the sake of time, I'm going to move on to current events is the next one. And then after that one, I'm going to take questions because we're about to hit bigger ones after that. So current events is not, again, not today's current events. It's not about uh, watching the news. It's about what significant events in the biblical story occurred around the time of this text and would, and would inform what the text is talking about. So the text might be assuming that its audience is already thinking about those events. An example of this, we were talking about how uh, God's people are either threatened with exile during this time, or God's people might also be reading this later during exile, right? And this text, Isaiah 55, is addressed to them under the threat of exile and then in exile. And so because we know about the Babylonian exile from the biblical story, how God's people in Judah rebelled against God and were cast into exile after they were invaded by the Babylonians, we know, because that's in the context of our text, we know that we ought to be interpreting with respect to that, right? Great. So that's current events. I'm going to stop for questions now before we move on to the rest of the stuff. It can be from anything we've said so far. <coughs>
Yes. Um, if I'm new to reading the Bible and I have no idea how to look up contemporary books, or like mm-hmm. what, what, are, what are some resources? Yeah, that's a great question. If you have no idea how to look up like, well, what books were written around the same time? The, the first thing I always want to say is read the Bible. And that's not going to be the only thing I say, so don't worry. But read the Bible because a lot of times the, the information, it's just helpful to see that the information about when the books were written and which ones go together is often already contained in the texts themselves. And so I'm also going to recommend look at a reliable study Bible like the ESV study Bible. I opened up to the, uh, the introduction of Isaiah last night. And they actually have a, like at the beginning of the prophets, they've got a list of all the prophets and when they were written and their ministries and which of them overlapped. So there are diagrams like that. You could Google it, can't always trust the internet, of course. So the first thing is, of course, look at the Bible uh, because a lot of times at the beginning or ends of biblical books, you'll find clues about where they go. And that's really where the good study Bibles are getting their information anyway. But as an introduction, it's always good to, you know, it can be good to take a a study Bible like the ESV study Bible. Uh, There are other reliable ones. Ask your pastors for recommendations. uh, And those are super helpful. You can also check out the Bible Project. I give that recommendation with some reservations because I don't agree with everything that they ever say on their videos, but the Bible Project has good like book of the Bible summary videos. You can check those out. They usually give you an idea of where each book of the Bible falls and which other ones are contemporary. Uh, yeah, but you know, take some of the things about like whether this was written later or that, that sort of stuff with a grain of salt. Yeah, any other questions? Go ahead, Brendan. How do we think about like um, truths within pas- passages that aren't necessarily like part of the main theme of the passage? Mm-hmm. Like I'm just thinking of, we went through the Attributes of God class and a lot of like proof texts and stuff are texts that like are pointing out like like mm-hmm. maybe this text would be like, you know, God is all knowing, his thoughts are higher than ours. But that's not like the main point of the passage. Mm-hmm. Maybe you're gonna get there with like how the text applies to us, but I don't know if you have thoughts. Okay. That's a great question, because I wasn't gonna go there. Okay. So I'm gonna give you the the question was what, what about when something that's said, theological in the Bible, isn't the main point of the passage? For instance, when in somewhere in Isaiah, in the 40s, God is talking about how he's, uh, I, Israel should turn to him because he's better than all the false gods. And it mentions all, uh, many of his glorious attributes. And we use that for understanding the attributes of God. But that wasn't, that wasn't the final point of the text, right? So uh, to give you just a five-second answer, I think when a text assumes something about God, it makes it really clear that this is a bedrock assumption about God. I think it's still valid to use that assumption ourselves because the text in a way is still teaching that. So there still will be truths that the Bible basically assumes as fact and assumes that its audience will agree with or is persuading its audience of for a further goal. The steps to get to the further goal, I think are still valid points to take away 
But I think your question brings up a great point that if you read a text that tells you that God is all-knowing in order to do something to you, to transform how you worship God or how the audience worships God, then you should make sure that the reality that God is all-knowing does that to you instead of just taking the information and leaving the rest. So when we do one of those like summary classes about what does the whole Bible say about God, we're not just summarizing what does the whole Bible say about like these facts. We're also saying we also need to be doing when the Bible gave us all these facts, what did it mean us to do with them? So I think, I think that could be helpful. Right, I'm going to move on to... Oh, sorry, go ahead, Danny. Uh, whenever, okay, back to the, uh, the, uh, the Bible project. Mm -hmm. Whenever you said that uh, there were some things that you didn't agree with, is that like two different interpretations then? Uh, it's more like I think they're in, some of their interpretations are wrong and not orthodox, but not so much that I wouldn't recommend them for information. Uh, you can talk to me afterward if you want specifics on them. Uh, but I think they're super helpful for certain things. And there are certain points of theology that I think, like, I think they just don't have right. But it's, mo it's the sort of thing where they don't say enough, enough about something rather than that they say too much or something totally wrong. We'll, we'll wrap that point up and we'll come back to that. If you want to hear more, talk to me afterward. Does that sound good? Okay, great. The next point, we're at the third blank under Roman numeral two on your handout. This one is another C, it's covenantal terms. And this one is about how does this text relate to the promises or requirements of its current biblical covenant? So if you wanna learn more about covenants, you can go back and see uh, Bryson's class about the, the several biblical covenants. Uh, the, I'll give you just a super brief overview here, and I've put this handy-dandy uh, table on the back of your handout that has a list of all the covenants we're going to mention and all the information that, or not all the information, a really brief summary of the information that you could use when you want to relate these to a biblical text. So a covenant is a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to each other. That's a quote from theologian Thomas Schreiner that Bryson used in his class, and I stole it. Uh, and uh, throughout the history of the Bible, God has made several key covenants with human representatives like Adam, Noah, and Abraham, and the rest of the people on, uh, on that table I gave you. Uh, these covenants function as a means by which the holy God sets up relationship with his people where he clarifies his promises to them and gives commands toward them for walking with him and being his people. And so that's the very basic definition of what the covenants are. Why are we bringing them up now? The answer to that question is, when you consider the covenantal terms at the time of the text you're reading, that can help point you to the major promises and warnings that would have been top of mind for the original audience of the text and for the author of the text. So if we look at Isaiah 55, if we ask the question, what was the most recent biblical covenant and what were the promises in play? 
what were the what other biblical covenants might be referenced here that came before what are the promises in play what are the commands what are the consequences threatened if you if they broke the commands that sort of thing if we ask all those questions then that'll help us understand what the author and the original audience would have been interacting with theologically at the time and to help us catch some of those things so question for the class looking at this table of covenants and your knowledge of the biblical order and the biblical storyline what was the latest covenant that was made before isaiah 55 what's that the covenant with David. And what promises and commands did the covenant with David introduce? God was to put a, uh, a son of David on the throne of Israel forever. Excellent. Yeah. Sorry, sometimes it's patronizing when the teacher asks, like, what's the thing I put on your handout, right? <laughs> but th this is more so just to point out that this information, it isn't, all this is from the Bible. All this information is, in, is available. There are other great summaries of the biblical covenants. You can go back and listen to Bryson's class if you want some more information. Uh, but uh, focusing on what Tori just said, uh, yeah, Isaiah came after the covenant with David and the following promises and commands were in play. Uh, God promised to put a king on David's throne forever, promised a place for Israel to dwell in peace, give them rest for their enemies. God promised them steadfast love that will not depart from David's offspring. So he's going to have steadfast love for David's family forever. And God will discipline David's offspring when he sins. There's that part in 2 Samuel 7 when uh, when he sins, I will discipline him with the rod of men. I take that to mean that God is going to punish the sinful kings of Judah when they sin, give them real punishments. And uh, I think we see that when the kings of Judah abandon God and go after idols, God sends punishment for them. Uh, in Isaiah 55, we actually see a specific reference to the covenant with David. I think someone mentioned that earlier, right? Yeah. Could you read that again for us, Tori? Um, the whole verse or just the part? Yeah, read the whole verse. Whatever you think is relevant. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Yeah. Read the next two verses, too, because I think they're still related to that. Okay, so we've got a direct reference to the covenant with David. References to the covenants do happen a lot in the prophets, so I guess we shouldn't be too surprised. We don't always get this. So this is pretty significant, right? So what do you guys think we should do with our, our main point of the passage? Is there anything here that we should be fleshing out in light of this relation to the covenant with David? What is, what is, what's the significance, rather, of the reference to the covenant with David, what the text is trying to say. Yeah, go so for it. located in a few of those different places, but like what the blessing is, the blessing mm -hmm. is the promises that you gave to David 
reassurances from God that God will keep his covenant to his people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, indeed. This isn't just a, a, you know, all of God's promises are important and sure, but this is one of the high point high points of scripture promises where God made a promise to his chosen line of kings, right? Like God promised to never withhold his steadfast love from the line of David. So you know that the blessing and the reassurance from God is tied to all of that. We're supposed to see that tying into that part of the biblical storyline. Go ahead, Tori. I have a question. Mm -hmm. Um, Ooh. Says, like, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. Is it just him reminding us of the covenant, or is it kind of a looking forward to the new covenant? Okay, that's a great question. I think that this one is looking forward to the new covenant. So we could make a connection to the covenant, uh, the new covenant, where Jesus is the king who never sins and never has to be disciplined for his sin. In fact, was disciplined for our sins and not his own right? Looking forward to the new covenant where God's people will dwell with God forever and all the nations will, will, people from all nations will stream to the one true God, right? I think there is a real connection there. How would the original audience have taken it? They wouldn't have all the information that we have, but we have additional information that God means for us to use to understand this part too, based on the rest of scripture, which is actually where we're going in the third horizon. So I guess we should just head over there right now. I'm going to do that in a moment. Any other questions on this part? Because I know the covenants part is a little hard. I know we went through it really fast. If you need more information just on covenants, you can listen to Bryson's class, come up to me afterward. There are other resources. The main idea is when you see promises or warnings come up in scripture, they might be connected to the latest covenant. You might want to see what was said the last time and see if it's actually being reiterated right now. So this is an example of that. Any other questions before we move on? Okay, let's go into horizon number three. It's called the canonical horizon. This is how the entire story of the Bible illuminates the text message. And graciously, there's only one blank under this one. It's redemptive history, uh, the true story of God's gracious acts to rescue his people and to showcase his glory, which stretches across the entire Bible and all of human history. What we're talking about here is that every passage in the Bible is contributing to this big story of God redeeming his people. God is on mission throughout the entire biblical story to glorify himself by saving his people from the judgment they deserve through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the gospel, that we don't deserve God, but he is gracious toward us, that he is king, and that though we've rebelled against him, he, from beginning to end, cover to cover in the Bible, has implemented his plan of redemption to glorify himself by saving his people through Jesus Christ. Yeah, and God actually means us to see that every passage in the Bible contributes to this big story. It's always building on it. It's drawing from it. It's contributing to it. And so we should be interpreting every text of the Bible in view of the entire story. 
when we understand how our text, Isaiah 55, connects to the threads and themes that span the Bible's big story, the big story itself will help us correctly interpret the text. This is like a popular analogy. It's like reading a mystery novel and you read the entire book and get to the end and there's the big reveal, mystery solved. If you were to go back and read, a chap read chapter three near the beginning, there are probably things that you'd see more clearly now that hadn't yet been revealed. And God actually means us to see in his Bible what he was meaning the whole time. Specifically, that all of his redemption was going to climax in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that Jesus Christ would be the one who fulfilled all the covenants, makes us his people, saves us at great cost to himself, at no cost to us, and redeems us and brings us to the final new creation at the end. So that's what we're supposed to see. And what we're doing right now in this part is we are looking at this big story of scripture. I, I wrote this diagram. It's also on the back of your handout if you wanted to look at it. It's a little small because I ran out of space. But uh, this one, it's like a diagram that represents going from creation to God redeeming his people in Israel becoming more and more narrow until the promises and the covenants refer specifically to Jesus. His plan of redemption becomes located on one person, the Son of God, and then his plan of redemption expands back to the whole creation using his entire church to implement his plan, depending upon Jesus, until it reaches the new creation where all of creation gets redeemed, right? So that's, a big, that's the big story. Uh, if you want more information on this, we did a class on this like two months ago. You can go check that out. But what we're doing right now is we're taking Isaiah 55 and we're locating it right there, somewhere in the story before Jesus, right? And what we want to do is we want to examine the themes and the threads that weave through the entire story see when, where they intersect our text and understand how does this part of the story, Isaiah 55, connect to the rest of the story? What is it doing, right? So that's essentially, essentially what we're looking out for. There's a, another table I put on the back of your handout there. That one is the list of ways to to connect a text to the entire story, to the entire Bible. And I'm only gonna read over three of them uh, since we only have so much time. The rest of them are a little more straightforward. The first one is promise fulfillment. That's when God gives a promise and fulfills it later, like in Genesis 17, where God gives a promise to Abraham, fulfills it later by bringing Abraham's people to the land that he promised, but then they lose it, then fulfills it later, later, when God brings all of his people home to the new creation because of Jesus, right? And then there's uh, the second one, second row, biblical themes, so recurring ideas that are developed across the stages of redemptive history. We actually had like five classes on different themes across the Bible, things like Sabbath, priest and sacrifice, all of these things, how do you actually use all of those things when you read the Bible? What you do is you take your text, you see what themes it references, like does a priest show up? Does the Sabbath show up? Does God's presence show up? 
and you ask, well, if it shows up in my text, what happened beforehand and what happened afterward with that theme? How does that connect us to Christ and the rest of the story? And then the third one I'm going to mention is typology. These are historical events, persons, or institutions that build a recurring pattern and escalate to a fulfillment of that pattern. The example I have here is uh, in Romans 5, Paul explains that Christ is the true and better Adam, that though by Adam's disobedience, we were all counted guilty by Christ's obedience. He did it all perfectly. We're all counted. We who believe in him are counted not guilty. We are justified before God. Right. So I'm just going to open it up to the floor for the final few minutes here. Let's just practice with a few of these. Looking at Isaiah 55, are there any themes, types, promises that you could use, that you could, or rather not use, but rather look at how they connect to the rest of the Bible story? Go ahead, Nick. Yeah, um, in John chapter 5, I think, it might be 6, Jesus literally says, I am the bread of life. Mm -hmm. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever comes to me shall not thirst. And then I think the next chapter over he says, if anyone comes to me, out of me flows rivers of living water, and they Mm -hmm. shall never thirst. So that seems to be a direct promise Mm -hmm. fulfillment of of, uh, Isaiah. Yeah, excellent. Which part of Isaiah 55 are you referring to there? Just point it out for uh, us. Yeah, the first verse, come everyone who thirsts, come mm-hmm. to the waters, uh, come by, by wine and milk, without money and without price. Um, yeah, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? So it's, this is all, it's directly fulfilled in Jesus actually mm-hmm. being the water, the bread, mm-hmm. and you can just come to it without money, without price. Yeah, Amen. Great. So we've made a connection. I'm just going to stick on this one just for a moment. We've made a connection to some other part of the Bible. We've made a connection to Jesus, the center, right? That he is the food and the water. But what does that mean for our main point? How does that come back into the main point of this passage? Were we just supposed to like understand the main point and then find the Jesus connection and they're two separate things? Or does that do something to the thing we just read? How, how does that flesh out the main point for us? Go ahead, Lydia. Well, we talked about like, the marketplace um, mm-hmm. analogy um, comparing, like, well, it shows us that like, we're satisfied in God and that's where we find true life. Mm-hmm. But if Jesus is that like, food and that drink, he's the way that we're satisfied yeah amen so we're taking the connection right and then we reach another level or another piece of interpretation that tells us not only are we supposed to come to the lord for blessing we're supposed to be coming specifically to jesus he specifically is the one who provides us fellowship with god who is the word of god that's excellent great We're just about out of time, so I'm just going to point out one other helpful thing to do when you're doing things like that, the themes, right? We went forward with this idea. I'd call it a theme or a type, typology. 
It's also helpful to go backwards sometimes to make sure that the pattern you're seeing isn't just a one-off thing that you made up, but rather God is doing this over and over and over again in the Bible. Uh, we, this theme of food without price and the stuff where Jesus tells us that he's the bread of life. What, what, what else in the Bible do you think that could refer to? What's an earlier thing? Ooh, manna in the desert. Oh, right. We got manna in the <laughs> desert. What, what's, why, is, why is the manna significant? What, what, what did that mean? Yeah, excellent. So we've got food for no cost, provision by God, right? That Israel had to depend upon God specifically and follow his rules and not gather it when they weren't supposed to, rely upon God for the provision. Traces forward to here, where this text is clearly about don't go after the idols, don't go after those bad military alliances, go after God himself, rely upon him him instead. Then we trace it forward, and this is where it applies directly to us. Don't go after anything else. Go after the Lord Jesus Christ. Depend upon him. He's the only way that you have access to God. And and that's what we're supposed to be seeing there. When we read Isaiah 55, we start where they were, but then we end up with the whole story. And we know that the whole story connects to us through Jesus. Great. So I'm going to close in prayer since we're out of time. Lord God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for teaching us about yourself. We ask that you would glory and you would just help us read your word in a way that honors you. And that you'd help us understand you and worship you because you deserve it. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen.